Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of our healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Jeannie Covey about hypnotherapy from a clinical psychologist's perspective. Jeannie Covey, welcome to the show. We're really, really glad to have you on board um, and sharing your your experience and your knowledge with us around hypnotherapy. Welcome on board. Thank you, Oliver. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I know. The pleasure is always ours. eh? I mean, as I was telling you just before we started, I mean, for me, we actually get to learn tons. I mean, even this topic, hypnotherapy, I can't wait to get into it. But uh, before I do that, I always ask shares this question. And obviously, I, I know the answer for this particular podcast because we know you for quite some time. But Chess, how did you get Jeannie to, to agree to be on the show? Um, actually, to be fair, Jeannie had posted something on her Facebook page about a magazine article that she was in on the subject of hypnotherapy. And it just kind of struck me. We hadn't yet covered it. So I popped her a message on Facebook Messenger and she came back saying, yeah, she'd love to be involved. And here we are. And that's amazing. Yeah. Are you always so active on Facebook? Um, yeah, I like to be active on Facebook. I share, um, obviously, curated content about my personal and professional life on Facebook. Um, Instagram, I have only got personal content and don't have anybody work-related on Instagram, so that's more of my personal. Um, but, yeah, I do like to make myself visible both to my clients, my friends, and my community of being a little bit of a real person. Um, on my on my Facebook profile and it was really a lot of fun doing the article with Fair Lady on hypnosis it's a very important topic to me on educating people about hypnosis um, so when um, Fair Lady asked me to do that article I jumped at the opportunity just like when Shaz asked me to do this podcast today I jumped on this opportunity and I'd say yeah I do share um, obviously selected and curated content on Facebook to do with both my personal and my professional life. Yeah, I love that, hey. I mean, because uh, it keeps it real and it keeps it authentic. And, uh, and I think I've always believed that for some reason, you know, for some time, I think it would, especially healthcare practitioners, you know, there was almost this like fence around it and you couldn't be a real person because you had to be a certain person. And I always yeah. found that was almost like not authentic, you know, and I like, I like your approach to it because it makes a okay. lot of sense. Yeah, thank you. I don't believe in the whole tabula rasa, untouchable, perfect person. I'm real, I'm flawed. Um, I'm obviously strategic in what I share um, and where of the audience that I share it with. But one of the, the things that my clients often say to me is that they appreciate that I'm a real person um, and that helps them to feel my unconditional positive regard for them and not feel judged by this perfect person persona that, you know, would be a facade anyway and inauthentic, like you say. Mm, yeah, I love that. I mean, it resonates with what I've always thought. And I'm glad that you do that. Um, yeah. And I think everyone benefits from that. But going into hypnotherapy, I mean, tell us about that. And like I said, I mean, I've got, I mean, I've heard about it, but I don't know how it works. I mean, uh, and and just to put it in perspective, you're a clinical psychologist. So, you know, normally when we speak to clinical psychologists, it's about psychodynamic therapy or CBT or, uh, you know, we've learned quite a few other ones in the, you know, over the, over the shows now, um, like BWRT. But tell us, how does hypnotherapy fit into it? Okay, so hypnotherapy is um, a modality of psychotherapy that uses the natural neurocognitive phenomenon of trance or hypnosis 
to alleviate presenting complaints and reach therapeutic goals. So in hypnosis, we take advantage of the fact that a person's brain is programmed and inclined to go into this natural state we call hypnosis or trance in order to help them alleviate their presenting complaints and reach their therapeutic goals. So would someone actually, I mean, like, do you have, would you, would you explain to someone how hypnotherapy works? I mean, at what stage, I think, you know, uh, does someone actually choose that they're going to do hypnotherapy? I always explain to my clients how hypnotherapy works, and I'm very happy to explain to you guys. I'm sure we're going to get there exactly how it works technically. But in order for hypnosis, everybody can be hypnotized, and we all actually hypnotize ourselves all the time. Um, for example, driving somewhere very familiar and you forget the route you took and suddenly you're home. That's actually a state of hypnosis called the highway hypnosis or planning to go to the shops after work and suddenly you're at home. You're like, oh, I forgot. Or walking into a room and forgetting what you walked into the room for. Or watching a movie and experiencing emotions based on what's going on for the characters in the movie. Those are all kinds of hypnosis. And we are naturally programmed to hypnosis because it is very therapeutic for the survival center of our brain, for our amygdala. The pattern of brainwaves are very regulatory. So everybody has got the potential to be hypnotized, and we hypnotize ourselves all the time. But in order for hypnosis to take place in an interpersonal context, whether it's therapy or stage hypnosis or whatever the context for hypnosis is, there has to be three conditions. The first condition is that there has to be communication. So I have to share some kind of communication with the person that I'm going to be inviting to hypnotize themselves in that moment, because I can't hypnotize anybody, but I can show you how to hypnotize yourself. Um, secondly, there has to be consent. So you cannot hypnotize somebody that doesn't want to be hypnotized. And then finally, there has to be freedom from fear. So if a person doesn't understand hypnosis and is still under the mis misconceptions and myths about hypnosis, that it is allowing somebody to take over, it is mind control, it is giving control over to the other person, there will be fear. And hypnosis does not have to be fearful. Hypnosis is actually incredibly safe. It can be incredibly effective, but it's also incredibly safe. And I always explain to my clients exactly how hypnosis works so that they understand how safe it is. Now, sometimes, and like recently after the article with Fair Lady, I got a lot of people asking me specifically for hypnosis. But it's actually, that is not the norm. The norm is usually that a client presents for therapy. And I will see that this particular client would benefit from hypnosis. And then I will introduce um, um, the concept of hypnosis, explain to the client exactly how it works, and then invite them to experience hypnosis. Mm. I, I like what you said there in terms of, so they hypnotize themselves. It's not that you hypnotize them. Is that right? All hypnosis is self-hypnosis. So I might say hypnotize a client, but it's actually not true. So you can kind of think of the, the hypnotherapist being like oh, the GPS, but the client is actually the driver. So the client tells me where they want to go. They want to work on this particular thing. They want to work on their belief that they can't be loved in a relationship. They want to work on smoking. They want to work on their fear of public speaking. They want to work on this belief that um, – um, romantic relationships are going to be traumatic for them. They want to work on anything that is happening outside of their, their conscious awareness in their subconscious that is informing their range in their role repertoire. So they want to work on something like that. Um, so they tell me where they want to go. They put the destination into the GPS. And I know the route to go there, but I'm not driving the car. 
So I will say turn right here, I will say in 200 meters via left or whatever it is that the GPS says, and that in that the client will get into the state we call trance, which is actually just a pattern of brainwaves. It is a naturally occurring pattern of brainwaves that we all experience throughout the day. And the client will then be able to deliberately manufacture this, um, this pattern of brainwaves in order for us to reach the therapeutic goals. But I'm not the one driving, the client is the one inducing their own trance. I love that. I love the analogy as well because it makes it re- again. It makes it real. You know, I can I can kind of relate to that. I like what you said about the trans stuff, but I'm still stuck on this idea that you can almost do it. And, and I don't know. There was, there was this TV series at some stage. I think it was called Andre the Hypnotist or something. But you would always get people to do these weird things. So in my mind, I'm still like you know stuck on that. So so how did he do that? I know it's maybe you know not psychology related, but how how, how did he do that stuff? I'm so glad you brought that up because um, stage hypnotism is real hypnotism. Um, in fact, the model of rapid induction hypnosis that I and my colleagues that I'm trained with follow was developed by a guy called Dave Ullman, who himself was a stage hypnotist. He wasn't a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And he was a sort of rival at the time of Milton Erickson, who was also seen as sort of the father of hypnosis. And it's a different kind of rapid induction. We just have different principles um, to the the, um, the Ericksonian, the Milton Erickson um, Institute. We have got different principles of how to induce that trance. But um, Dave Ullman and Milton Erickson were rivals at around the same time, the 1950s and the 1960s. And Dave Ullman's father was a hypnotist, um, stage hypnotist, and Dave Ullman himself was a stage hypnotist. Now, Dave Ullman worked very closely with the Mayo brothers um, from the Mayo Clinics. And he actually using hypnosis because one of the phenomena of a state of hypnosis called the Isdale state, named after James Isdale, who was a British physician, is um, anesthesia. And um, Dave Ullman worked with the Mayo Clinics to use hypnosis for their doctors, nurses, and dentists to use hypnosis for anesthesia, which lowered the rates of um, anesthesia-related mortality because they were having to use less anesthetic per patient. And back in the 1950s and 60s, the medication wasn't as effective as it is now, and there was a higher risk of anesthesia. And then the head of anesthesia anesthetics wanted to publish an article about the use of hypnosis in anesthetics, and the Mayer brothers prevented her from doing so because they didn't want to discredit their clinics because hypnosis was seen as sort of fringe science. Okay, But Dave Ullman himself was actually a stage hypnotist. Now, how... Um, people like Andre, the amazing hypnotist work, or Max Kahn works, is that the person that is participating with them wants to have a good time. They want to be the center of attention. They want to have a different experience. They want to bite into an onion and have a taste like an apple. They want to do that. So they volunteer. So how it works is that um, Andre, the hilarious hypnotist, will say, who would like to come up? And there are two kinds of people that go up. Those that want to have a good time and prove that hypnosis works, and those that want to go up and prove that it doesn't work. And then they do a screening. And of course, those who want to prove that it doesn't work, they don't get selected in the screening because they don't go into trance because they haven't consented to it. And so then they go off. And the ones that want to participate, that want to have a good time, they will stay behind. Now, I saw um, a stage hypnotist show with, um, there was a South African, an Xmas South Africa. And the hypnotist said to her, she said to the hypnotist, I just don't want to look foolish. I just don't want to be made to look foolish. I'll do anything, but don't make a fool out of me. And he smiled and he nodded and he winked at the audience. And then when she was deeply entranced, and we can see when a person's deeply entranced by certain um, uh, physiological things that happen that a person can't do on purpose, that are, are spontaneous things. So you can see she was deeply entranced. 
And then he said to her, right, now you are a world famous opera singer and everybody here is here to hear you sing your best aria. Now go ahead and sing it. And she simply shook her head slowly from side to side and said, no. So she didn't want to do that. She didn't want to be made to look foolish. And so she said no. So you cannot make a person do something under hypnosis that they don't want to do. And you cannot make somebody believe something under hypnosis that they don't want to believe or that their subconscious does not believe is in the best interest of the system because the subconscious is always looking after you to protect you. That's why if you're sleeping and you smell smoke, you will wake up. Or you hear a loud sound when you're sleeping, you wake up because your subconscious is always looking after you. And it's the very same in hypnosis. So to answer your question, I know it was a very long answer. Stage hypnotism is real, but it relies on those same things. Communication, consent, and freedom from fear. And the people that cluck like a chicken, that bite into the onion, they want to have that experience. They want to bypass their critical faculty and have a selected experience that is something different and have a good laugh. Hmm. <laughs> I'm so glad you clarified that. And, and also, I mean, hearing you speak, I mean, that's, I mean, there's a lot of um, history behind it, which I love as well. I mean, like, you know, how it, and it always starts off as fringe, eh? I mean, it's always the, you know, the eccentric ones that first start off with something new. Uh, but yeah. it's amazing that, you know, it's found its place. And I love that. And also, I mean, like, you know, the actual meat of it, you know, how did it actually come into healthcare? Which I love. And I so think Freud himself, actually, Freud himself was actually very bad at hypnosis. So he and his, his chummies went down to the hypnosis school in the south of France against their um, supervisor's wishes. And he tried to learn hypnosis, and he was very bad at it. Um, he couldn't do it. It would take him almost an hour and a half to induce even a light trance. Um, and so that was when psychology once again said no to hypnosis because Freud was bad at it. And he developed his free association technique as a compensation to not being able to do hypnosis, which is actually a kind of hypnosis, but he didn't do the rapid induction. And then it fell by the wayside again, and then it was brought up again in the 1950s and 60s, and yes, exactly like you say, new and fringe, and because it wasn't well understood, it was seen as almost quackery. Mm, I love that. And also, I mean, I, I love the fact of, uh, how you explained, you know, about, um, you know, Max Kahn, and I forgot about him, and Andre as well. The hypnotist because that always made sense for me and you know now we're exposed to a lot more reality tv so we do know people they filter out people you know obviously for the show's best interest so there's certain people that they do want on the show so that they can obviously make the show entertaining um so yeah thanks for clarifying that that actually makes a lot of sense though uh, i love that i know she has had a question and i kept on interrupting her but she has what did you have so there was actually two points that I wanted to get come back to. The one was I love the fact that you reiterated that hypnosis is firstly it's the person's choice and secondly it's safe. So whilst we're talking about famous hypnotists and that kind of, what is the difference then between something like hypnotherapy and what a mentalist would do, you know, where they almost put that idea into a person's mind? Is it the same thing or is it different? Yeah, so mentalists typically use a branch of hypnosis called neuro-linguistic programming um, that I'm not an expert on, but it is all down to the language that you use. Um, in our frame of reference, we call it your semantics. So it is all down to the language that you use, and we see very good hip uh, mentalists like Darren Brown who do absolutely incredible things. Um, but the thing is for a mentalist is that, and sometimes coaches use neuro-linguistic programming, um, it would it would be the difference between would be what would be the purpose. 
So for a coach using NLP or a psychologist or a registered counselor using hypnotherapy, the agenda would be to alleviate presenting complaints and reach therapeutic goals. Whereas for a mentalist, it might be more for entertainment purposes or for research purposes or for neuroscience and um, um, evidence purposes. So I'd say that the, the difference really is actually only down to the agenda and the purpose, whereas actually the, um, the neurophysiological and the neurocognitive processes might be very, very similar to one another, just different ways in. So I might, my GPS might say, go on the highway, whereas their GPS might say, you know, take the back routes because the highway is congested for whatever reason. So it's just different routes for different objectives, but also going into the same pattern of brainwaves, bypassing the critical faculty for selective thinking. Okay, so that does very much make sense then. It is that difference of, you know, what do you want the outcome to be? Because, you know, anybody I would assume in a therapeutic space that's talking to their therapist is looking to improve or change something about themselves and therefore that's why they would be looking for you know whichever type of therapy it would be but if it does come down to hypnotherapy it's that concept of there's something that I want to change and consciously I'm just unable to make that change so using hypnosis would then use that subconscious ability to just nudge the directions in the right way absolutely and my mentor who trained me in hypnosis Warwick Phipps uh, Dr. Warwick Phipps, who is an incredible hypno, um, hypnotherapist, Warwick actually says that all therapy is hypnotherapy. And it's, you might be using a rapid induction. You might be using... You might be using rapid induction. You might be using CBT. You might be using brain spotting. You might be using narrative. But the definition of hypnosis is that it's a frame of mind in which you bypass the critical faculty for selective thinking. And we see that in absolutely every single form of therapy. Okay. That's actually, that actually makes a lot of sense as well. I mean, um, but you were saying, sorry, Jeannie? Sorry, in all forms of therapy, it's a state of mind. A person comes to therapy in a particular state of mind, like Shaz is saying, there's something that I want to change. And if it was something that the person could consciously change, they would have changed it. They wouldn't need to come to therapy. So it's something sitting on the subconscious and we work interactionally. So we say what happens in the subconscious is the result of events in the interactional field and gets perpetuated by events in the interactional field. So that's our punctuation, but it all sits in the subconscious. And if the person could change it consciously, they would. So you have to bypass the conscious mind. You have to go past the conscious mind and talk directly to the subconscious. Now, in psychodynamic, that might be through analysis. In person-sensor therapy, that is when the person becomes emotional. Um, in brain spotting, that is when the person gets into the particular pattern of brainwaves by um, looking at the pointer. But at those times, there is a bypass of the critical faculty where the subconscious is now open to suggestion and suggestion for selective thinking, a new way of programming, an update of the schemas that lead to more effective functioning. And that's applicable to all forms of therapy. Now, it can be through hypnosis, like I said. It can also be through using metaphor. So when you tell your clients a story or use a metaphor, it is also when your client is um, emotional. It's also when you use experiential therapies like animal-assisted kinds of animal assisted psychotherapy. Or when you play, I like to use um, sometimes games in my session with my client to demonstrate a metaphor that I'm wanting to 
um, put across as an option for selective thinking to the subconscious. So in all kinds of therapy, there is this state of mind. There's something that, that I need to change. I can't do it consciously. Bypass of the conscious mind for selective thinking and rapid induction hypnosis is just a very acute and direct version of that. Mm, okay. I love how you also, I mean, explain the different modalities to us. I mean, I think that makes sense because, I mean, even, I mean, I think we had um, Emma Weinberg, you know, from an OT point of view, talking about hypotherapy um, you yes. know, and how she uses, you know, horses, you know, to connect with her clients, mainly children. Um, and I thought that was interesting, you know, again, a different modality of connecting. But, you know, it's like what, what you're saying about the subconscious, I, I love that word as well, because I think most, you know, as you said, you know, most of it, most of the action seems to be there, you know, like, and, and the more direct, you know, if you can get to that point, I mean, amazing, but I almost like think of it like when your computer is on sleep mode, it's all there, but it's not, you know, and it's only once you click something that actually it wakes up. Um, exactly. exactly. The subconscious and the unconscious are always working to keep you safe. The unconscious being for physical well-being, the subconscious being for emotional well-being, relational well-being and emotional safety. They are always on. It's only the conscious mind that switches off. And in hypnosis, we do not switch the conscious mind off. It is not sleep. It is easier to access that pattern of brainwaves with your eyes closed and your body still, but it is not sleep. And back in the day of the 1950s and 60s when stage hypnotism was a very popular form of entertainment, People looked like they got stuck in hypnosis or fell asleep, but they actually didn't. They actually went into a very deep state of trance that is just so lovely and so blissful and so therapeutic that they kept pressing the snooze button every time the therapist wanted, the hypnotist wanted to bring them out. They said, no thanks, because it was just so nice. So in hypnotism, in hypnosis, we don't switch off the conscious mind. Not like when, when you sleep, this conscious mind is in off. It switches off to um, decompress, to um, uh, um, um, defragment to process to get rid of what it doesn't need to rest recharge restore but the subconscious and the unconscious are always working that's why you keep breathing when you're sleeping your endocrine system keeps working when you're sleeping and your subconscious is also constantly keeping you safe which is why you dream when you're sleeping because your subconscious is working to process information process the relational field process the um the emotional world in order to integrate these rules about how to keep yourself safe in your relationships, which we call schemas. Yeah, I, I love that point about the snooze button. So, you know, more importantly, the fact that you're actually not asleep when you're un undergoing hypnosis. So it's not we've put you to sleep and we're putting a, a dream in your mind. It's more of a case of you're, you've actually just opened that conscious mind up enough to go, we need to just come through you to just start changing the way you think about these things. So for, on a personal note, how would hypnotherapy help somebody stop smoking? Okay, so um, it's such a beautiful question, and I'd love to share a little story with you guys about this particular one which in which I learned a lot about hypnosis from a client who wants you to stop smoking. Um, and then I promise I'll answer your question in a more succinct way, but I wanted to give you this, this example. So this particular client had a child with an autoimmune illness, and um, she, her focus in her life was health. Um, cooked everything from scratch, even made muesli from scratch, no preservatives in the house because of the child's autoimmune. Yoga six times a week, cycling three times a week. Her herself was incredibly healthy. And we had used hypnosis to help her work through the trauma of her child's illness and a lot of the anxiety that she had. We worked through a lot of stuff with hypnosis. 
And she asked me the one day to help her stop smoking. And I was so surprised that she was a smoker because everything about her was health, health, health. And I was like, absolutely, gung-ho, we've used hypnosis before. And so put, uh, she put herself into trance with the, the, the pattern, the guide from me as the hypnotherapist, the semantics. And she went into a very deep trance. And then I gave her the, um, the script that we normally use, which was that she was currently smoking 10 cigarettes a day. So I said to her, you will smoke no more than seven cigarettes per day. And each cigarette you will enjoy smoking less and less. And in hypnosis, we've got a principle of compounding. So the more you say something, it's like, it's imagine that there's a tube going into the person's subconscious through their ear. And every time you put a suggestion in, it's like putting a piece of cotton wool into that tube. When you put another suggestion and you put that earlier one in deeper. So we say it many times, so it compounds. And every time I said it, she would smile. Then after the session, I said to her, why were you smiling when I said that? Did you enjoy it? And she said, no, I just thought it was wonderful that you told me that I'll smoke more than seven cigarettes per day. And each cigarette I'll enjoy smoking. Her subconscious had completely edited what I was saying so that she could keep smoking. And when we unpacked it, um, it turns out that smoking was the one thing that was just hers. And had she given it up, she would have become very depressed. So it really depends. I've had clients that walk in that are really ready to stop smoking. And it really is just a matter of habit and helping them wean off the, the cigarettes with the hypnosis, discomfort management, comfort management, um, and working through the habit. But most of the time with smoking, it is actually a very complex psychological experience. It's a relationship that they have. So we have to together, before the hypnosis, understand what are the underlying mechanisms of this relationship? What is the smoking doing for you? And how can we, in another way, have that need met um, in a way that the smoking no longer is useful to you anymore? And working through, it's almost like breaking up from a toxic relationship. Why doesn't the person just leave? Because there is something that they are needing from this relationship that if they were able to outsource, they wouldn't need this relationship anymore. So in smoking hypnosis, I will still sometimes use that, but I will also combine it with whatever it is that we've identified in our talk part of our session as the underlying mechanisms keeping this relationship going. For example, it might be that um, this person started smoking as a way to feel confident that they feel very self-conscious when they're standing in a social setting without a, a drink in one hand and a smoke in the other. So then we'll give the suggestions that you feel incredibly um, comfortable and confident in social settings. Your hands feel um, like they always have belonged to your body. It's easy to find a place to rest your hands comfortably. You enjoy having your hands free to express yourself. So you always have to add in something that would be um, beneficial to the subconscious. Um, for example, I've never been a smoker, but I did used to drink too much sugar in my tea. And Warwick, in training me in hypnosis, and um, we worked on this particular one, and Warwick gave me the suggestion that I really love the taste of my tea in the morning. Um, and we have spoken about it before. Why do I drink tea? Why do I like it? What do I like about it? And how the sugar was actually interrupting the flavor of the tea. And how when I taste the flavor of the tea, I feel ready for the day. I feel confident, I feel alert, I feel focused on my clients. And this is about 10 years ago. And to this day, I, I no longer drink Five Roses tea. I only drink black rooibos with no sugar and no milk. And to this day, I cannot start my day without my tea because it makes me feel like I'm ready for the day. I'm focused on my clients. It's no caffeine in it, so it doesn't do anything for me on a, a physiological level. But that suggestion really resonated with me. It worked for me, and so it stuck. And even if I were to have five roses tea on the odd occasion, I wouldn't have it with sugar because the sugar interrupts the flavor. 
So that's an example. What you've got to do is you've got to find what is beneficial to this client. You've got to find what is the hook for them of this behavior that they want to change. And the art of hypnotherapy is not the trance. The art of hypnotherapy as the hypnotherapist, because it's not my success when there is trance, it's the client's success when there is trance. But my job, the art of it, is designing effective post-hypnotic suggestions that work on the nodal points of whatever it is the client wants to change. And it can't be directly opposed. It can't be, you don't like smoking anymore. It has to be what we say orthogonal at 90 degrees to create a disruption in that subconscious schema, or else the subconscious will just kick it out. And it has to be deemed by the subconscious as beneficial to the system, or else the subconscious will just kick it out. I think it's absolutely amazing the way you explain that because everybody says, you know, smoking's an addiction, which it is. Let's be very fair here. So coffee, so is monster, so is chocolate. Um, Some of them are better for you than others. But more importantly, that it's about why the person started smoking. So I would assume then that if you were to use hypnotherapy in a case where somebody has substance abuse, it would again be more looking at where the drinking or drug problem started and how do you then sort of change, you know, you don't need to have 10 beers to be the funniest person at the party, but, you know, you need to, you know. Okay, so that's actually quite a cool way of looking at it because it means that it is something that can be helped used for not just I'm feeling a bit down, depressed or anxious, but also for your more, substantial, I really need to change this because substance abuse or smoking or my obsession with chocolate's going to end my marriage kind of case. You can then. And absolutely. Now, we also first have to do our due diligence and make sure that this person is in their best interest to stay in the marriage, for example, because substance abuse is actually just a symptom. It's not not the real problem. It's an, an example of the problem. So in any kind of addiction work with with substances, we first have to figure out what is the function of the substance, and we have to figure that out on um, the subconscious level and and meet that need and heal that wound on the subconscious level so that the substance is no longer needed. It no longer serves a purpose. And that might be intrapersonally of how the person feels about themselves, or it could be serving a function in a relationship. Um, But we have to figure out what is it doing for the person And then we give suggestions both for managing the withdrawal and then also suggestions for healing whatever it is that that unmet need is that the substance is serving. But I also want to say that hypnosis, the state of hypnosis, even if I don't give any suggestions, but I always do, even if you don't give any suggestions, just the state of hypnosis, just being in that pattern of brain waves is so therapeutic for your brain. It's so regulating for your central nervous system that it is helpful for things like hip, um, uh, substance abuse or any kinds of habit because the person is more regulated from the inside out. Whereas a substance or even an addiction to, you know, running, for example, which is, you know, even wilder to me to think about an addiction to running and to heroin. But this running addiction is a way of regulating the central nervous system from the outside in. And if a person can't regulate themselves from the inside out, they have to have their fix whether it's gambling, whether it's sex, whether it's cutting, whether it's running, whether it's smoking, whether it's, um, you know, um, playing games on your phone, whatever is going to give you that dopamine hit that is going to interrupt the pattern of brain waves, help your amygdala, which is like the hand that's on the dial of your brain's radio, to change that frequency 
And hypnosis is a way of doing, it's a bottom-up approach. It's a brain-based approach. It's a way of working from the bottom of the brain, the amygdala, up into the limbic system where our schemas are stored. And then that then changes what happens in the cortex, changes our decision-making, changes our behaviors, changes what we choose to do from the bottom up by regulating, reprogramming, and then we see the change. I think you're the first person that has said running addiction. I love that you said it though, because I've always yes. believed that, you know, like people like almost like that is their fix, you know, they have to run. And I'm always like, really? Like have to, I mean, like they would use those words, you know, have to run or I'm going to go like psychotic. Well, their words, I mean, probably not, not the best choice of words, but you know, that's what they would say in corporate. So I always thought exactly. that was quite interesting. Um, you know, coming back to the smoking one, you know, what you said there, uh, I didn't want to interrupt the thought pattern, but I mean, again, I, I, I like what you said, because if you look at smokers as well, they almost have like a brand loyalty, you know, to us, you know, it's almost like that part, you know, they, they have like my dad, I mean, my dad smoked until he passed away, but you know, he had consulate cigarettes and I, I never, I don't know of anyone else that smokes consulate. I, I don't see it, you know, it's not like one of those, but he always had that box of 30s or 20s whatever that was, but um, it was such an odd box because it's this green box that you can't put in your pocket. It's just like the weirdest, you know, design, but he, he stuck to it. And I don't know. So lots of smokers always say, you know, it's because of the taste or whatever it is, but you know, I'm not a smoker as well, so I don't get it. But uh, yeah, they do have that brand loyalty. Um, yes, because it's sense. a relationship. It's a relationship um, mm. and it forms part of your identity and your identity is a way of being in other relationships. So you have a relationship with the cigarettes and you also have a relationship. And this is something that I've learned from my transgender clients about how important identity is and how important um, your, your branding is in terms of being able to connect with other people. That when my branding matches my brand, I can connect with other people more effectively. And like I said, this I learned from, from my transgender clients about the importance of identity and the importance of branding of that identity. And so your dad having that brand, that's part of his identity. He's got a loyalty to that relationship, but it's also part of your identity that this is who I am and who I am is how I engage with other people. Mm, yeah, I like that. Is it also, I mean, like, you know, lots of people say, and I know we touched on that because uh, I think, you know, for I, I'm quite cynical with it because like, you know, I always think like most smokers always come back to smoking, but there's two people that proved me wrong and they, they just kind of look, woke up the one day and they're just like, I'm going to stop smoking and like no hypnotherapy, nothing. They're just like, you know, cold turkey, they just stop smoking. And I thought that was quite interesting. You know, how, how did that work? And uh, yeah, so there's always that social aspect. That's why people always say, you know, they combine alcohol with smoking. Um, so always, do you have any thoughts around that? Is there that yeah. social aspect too? hundred percent. Again, it's a way of relating. And people that stop smoking spontaneously like that is when the smoking no longer serves a purpose. And um, so it's not, people don't stop smoking because they want to. They stop smoking because they no longer want to start to smoke. They no longer need to smoke. It's not that they stop because they want to. And we have absolutely, let me tell you, we have absolutely no willpower as human beings. Um, our decisions are actually made 0.4 of a second before in our subconscious before we become consciously aware of them. So it's not a matter of weakness of willpower. It's that willpower does not exist. Your subconscious is programmed for your survival. Your unconscious is programmed for your survival. And when it deems that something is safer and better for you than what your conscious mind has decided is safer and better, and I do want to talk a little bit about how that subconscious is formed and why it sometimes has faulty logic, and this is where hypnosis comes into play very importantly, 
is that it makes these decisions that I need this glass of wine for my survival. And your conscious mind stands no chance. Just like you cannot make yourself suffocate by deciding to stop breathing. No person in the history of the world has ever committed suicide by deciding to stop breathing. Isn't it the easiest way to commit suicide? But you can hold your breath. Eventually, your subconscious will say, your unconscious, sorry, will say, no, we must breathe. So your unconscious and your subconscious, they run these decisions. On an emotional level, the subconscious makes these decisions 0.4 of a second before you even become aware of them. So somebody that stops smoking just spontaneously like that is that there was no longer a need. The subconscious no longer needed it. It no longer served the same purpose. And so it wasn't worth it to continue and it could easily then just fall away. And like I say, I sometimes see clients that come in like that and I maybe see them one or two sessions. Um, you know, I will never forget my first client like that. I just say, you know, it's a process and it takes this long time. And she's like, oh, well, I, I actually gave away my, my last carton of cigarettes this morning. So I'm shit out of luck. I'm stopping smoking today. And I saw her again in the next session. She's like, oh, no, I stopped smoking. And I saw her daughter, who also stopped smoking at the same time for a long time. And then it, it, the therapy transformed into other things as well. And her mom had still stopped. Her mom never started smoking again, but because it never, didn't serve that function. So understanding what the function is, compensating for that function, outsourcing that function so that the substance, whether it's smoking or chocolate or running, if it's an, an unhealthy addiction to running where it's causing harm or um, um, any kind of functional impairment, is about understanding that that need needs to be outsourced. And that's where the hypnosis comes in and not blocking the behavior because that will never work. It's understanding what is the need of the subconscious and then also helping ease the unconscious in terms of the physiological discomfort of weaning off that particular substance. Mm, I like that. There, Shaz, you have a game plan now. <laughs> but uh, I'm kidding. I mean, like, um, you know, the one thing I didn't mention or we didn't hear so far is um, the whole meditation aspect. Is that, I mean, is that the reason why people say you should meditate? Is um, Does it get, in, get you into that trance kind of state? Yes, absolutely. So all meditation is hypnosis, but not all hypnosis is meditation. So meditation is one route to Cape Town, if you're going to use the GPS analogy. Um, but not all routes to Cape Town need to be that particular route. So when you're doing meditation, you put in your brain, it's actually a state of self-hypnosis. So you're putting your brain into that trance, and there's lots of different types of meditation, um, and rapid induction hypnosis um, puts your brain into the same kinds of pattern of brainwaves, but it's just a different route into it. So that's why I say all hypnosis, uh, all meditation is hypnosis, but not all hypnosis is meditation. Some hypnosis might be brain spotting. Some hypnosis might be running. You do actually go into that trance when you're running as well. Um, you're actually also in a natural state of hypnosis just before you fall asleep. We call it the hypnagogic state. So that's an excellent time to give yourself those affirmations that we know don't work when you say them to yourself in the mirror. They don't work when you say them to yourself in the mirror because you're giving them to your conscious mind. But when you give yourself those affirmations, and there's certain criteria for an affirmation to be effective, um, but when you give yourself those affirmations 15 times when you're lying in bed at night about to go to sleep, then they go directly into your subconscious. We call that the direct drive method. Um, so there are lots of different ways to get into hypnosis. Meditation is one of them, but it's not all hypnosis. And yes, that is why meditation is good for you. It's regulatory for your central nervous system. And you also get an opportunity in that time to program your own subconscious. But now what's important to remember is that when the central nervous system is very full, you think of it like a a glass it's very full when you're under a lot of stress and you don't actually have space to do meditation 
trying to meditate can actually irritate your central nervous system because when you try to make that pattern of brain waves, those waves threaten to spill over the container. Um, and spilling over the container is seems like death, seems, seems like threat of death to your amygdala. And so that's why people can't meditate when they're stressed or under a lot of pressure. But now when we do that in hypnosis, now my central nervous system is also there. So you can pour a little bit of water into my container. And in that way, there is enough space for that pattern of brain waves. But that doesn't always work the same when you're doing it by yourself. And when you're doing it with another person, we've got the co-regulation of the um, central nervous systems. Our central nervous systems are talking to each other all the time. So that increases the space in the client's central nervous system to be able to do that. So please don't beat yourself up if you can't meditate when you're stressed. Meditation is about wellness management. It's not about crisis management. And if you can do meditation when you're feeling well, which is the exact time when you don't think you should be doing meditation, then it helps you maintain the space in your central nervous system. But if it is in a time of crisis or where you really dysregulate it, working with another central nervous system will work a lot better than trying to work by yourself. Okay, so that was actually really interesting because I was going to ask you the link between meditation and hypnotherapy because there is something that the U.S. military teaches their soldiers and it's literally called the two-minute fall asleep. And you can take a soldier in the middle of a war zone where there's bombs and stuff going off him and he's told, right, you're sleeping for the next three hours, we're on watch. And they literally just recite this mantra and fall asleep anywhere. And would that also almost be something that they've somehow taught their subconscious that I've got my, you know, I've got my platoon with me, you know, or my squadron, I'm safe, I can sleep. But I could, because they all wake up exactly when they're supposed to, you know, two hours later. Yes. Is that training their subconscious that you sleep for? You need to fall asleep within two minutes. You need to wake up within four hours. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. That's why we wake up spontaneously at times, because our subconscious has an idea of the time that we should be waking up. So people typically, unless they're unwell, typically don't oversleep for three hours, do they? They typically oversleep for like 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then their subconscious wakes them up and says, oh, shit, we're late. Um, so absolutely. And I use a lot of hypnosis to help clients with sleep difficulties. And so what we do is the client puts themselves into that trance. And then I give suggestions for um, anchoring or pairing. So if they recite this particular mantra or if they do this particular thing, their brain goes into, um, into this, this pattern of brainwaves called sleep instantly. Now, hypnosis does not lead to sleep. Okay, so they are two different kinds of patterns of brainwaves. And hypnosis is not the precursor to sleep. But in the states of hypnosis, you can give yourself suggestions for sleep in which your brain can change track into that channel. And um, For example, if I struggle to sleep, I tell myself 15 times, I am fast and sound asleep. And what I like to do is I like to pair that with a count backwards. So I'll say to myself, 100, I am fast and sound asleep. 99, I am fast and sound asleep. And then I notice I stop doing it and I'm still awake and I bring myself back to 100. And it works every single time because I'm doing the counting, which I've been um, um, trained and my subconscious has been trained to associate counting with relaxation because of hypnosis. And also I've given my subconscious the suggestion and this leads us to the principles of a suggestion. It must be, it must be as if it's happening now. I can't say to my subconscious, I'm going to fall asleep very soon. Because very soon is always over there. Very soon is not now. But if I say, <coughs> I am fast and sound asleep, 
my subconscious takes that suggestion. I am fast and sound asleep. And so, yes, with those um, with, the, with the soldiers, I'm not sure exactly which particular method they use, but it is self-hypnosis, and it is a post-hypnotic suggestion that in this particular situation, you can give yourself this particular suggestion, and this will be the outcome in your central nervous system of the pattern of brainwaves called sleep. I think my daughter can definitely oversleep by three hours. Like, <laughs> so. uh, well, like I said, unless you're unwell or, or a teenager. Yeah, a um, teenager. Yeah. Oversleeping, you know, you forget to set mm. your alarm, mm. then you oversleep by, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Mm. I think if you don't wake her up, she's not going to wake up. It's like, even, yeah. What a, what a yeah, I know. Yeah, no, it's like blissful sleep. Um, I want to go back to, again, we, we talked on subconscious a lot, and um, I wanted to, to, to ask you something about this. So, so there were, and the only way I can almost explain it is there was this movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, Inception, I think it was. And you know, like, so they go into the dreams and they change stuff around. And what yes. I've been told, and again, this is, you know, I'd love to get the, you know, the plain side view on it is, so if you look at someone that suffered like early childhood trauma and stuff like that, the, the subconscious is, you know, and you mentioned it earlier about some conscious being formed. Um, so they almost like put up these barriers already, you know, like in there. And now when you bypass the conscious and you go into the subconscious, is there no risk to doing some like serious damage around that? I mean, how does someone protect themselves around that stuff? Okay, so this is a very good um, question. Um, so maybe what we can do is just give it some context to talk about how the subconscious is formed, and then I'll answer your question more directly. Would that be all right? Okay, so um, because that's a very good question, and it's, it's the reason why I don't do regression analysis I, unless I'm doing BWRT. That is what I would use instead of regression analysis um, uh, to work on a particular memory. Um, I use post-hypnotic suggestion. But let's talk about how the subconscious is formed, how it works, and then I'll answer your question to give it some context. So your mind is comprised of three facets. We've already named them the conscious mind, the unconscious, and the subconscious. Now, your conscious mind is the part of your mind. I like to think of it like the shop window. It's a nice, neat, organized representation of what's inside the shop. It's not all the stock, and it's nice and neatly arranged to be appealing in some way or another and to attract a certain market. So that is the part of ourselves that we show to the world around us. It's our adult selves. It's our logical selves. It's our nice, neat, appropriate selves. It's the part of us that we show to other people. And then deep inside the shop, there are two storerooms, the unconscious and the subconscious. Now, the unconscious is the part of your mind that comes pre-programmed at birth, and its job is to keep you physically safe. So it manages your endocrine function, heart rate, respiration. It tells your, bro your bones the rate at which to grow. It manages absolutely everything about your physical well-being. And it is pre-programmed at birth. It doesn't have to learn. It can. We've seen in hypnosis with pain management that it can learn, <clears throat> that it doesn't have to learn in order to be able to do its job effectively. And then you get the subconscious, which is usually the focus of our work in psychotherapy. Um, like I said, we can do um, pain management and hypnosis, but we usually focus on the, su the sub subconscious. And the subconscious is focused on emotional well-being. And its job, its job is to keep you emotionally safe. And the subconscious comes pre-programmed, uh, completely blank at birth.
the subconscious comes completely blank at birth. And although there are some theories now, like fetal origin studies, that shows that the subconscious learns three months before a baby is born, what kind of survival environments to expect both emotionally and physically. But we let's say for all intents and purposes, it comes pre-programmed at birth. <coughs> comes completely blank at birth. And the subconscious is comprised of every single experience you've ever had throughout your whole life. In fact, every single detail of every single experience you've had in your whole life is there in your subconscious. And obviously, this is a lot of information, so it has to organize this information into some kind of filing system, or else it would be chaotic. And it learns these rules of how to keep us emotionally safe and navigate the relational field. So, for example, if I give you a gift, what do you say? Thank you, you say thank you. Yeah, it's a spontaneous thing. Mm. If I um, accidentally bump into you with my trolley in the shop, what do I say? Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yes, unless I'm in Israel, I say, you know, get your ass out of the way of my trolley. Okay, so that's their way of keeping themselves relationally safe. It's a different culture. But I learn these rules um, automatically so I can spontaneously produce the right response to keep myself emotionally safe and navigate the relational frame. And these rules need to be integrated in order for them to make sense and be easily accessible. And so these rules, they formalize between the ages of five and nine and at times of trauma. So at any stage through the lifespan, at time of trauma, and also between the ages of five and nine. Now, once these rules are set, they are set, okay? And the only thing that can change them is therapy and hypnosis. Like I said, all therapy is hypnosis, but the only thing that can change them is bypass of the critical faculty for selective thinking. But once they set, they set. So let's say you have a new experience that's consistent with the schema, consistent with the blueprint. You accept that experience and it reinforces the schema. Now, let's say you have a new experience that is inconsistent with the schema. You distort, deflect, or deny that. And it then reinforces the schema. So let's say this is people with low self-esteem. When somebody compliments them, they say, oh, no, they're just being nice, or they don't really know me, or they want something from me. But when somebody criticizes them, they take it to heart. Okay. I, for example, when I was a little girl, I believed that all grandparents live by the sea. Because my grandmothers lived by the sea, both of them. <clears throat> so if a friend told me her granny lives by the sea, I would say, yes, that's where grannies live. They live by the sea. And if she told me that her granny lives in the garden cottage, I'd say, no, she can't live there. She's maybe visiting, but she can't live there. But luckily, this belief was not important for my emotional safety. So when I got new information, I said, oh, okay. Now, when we use hypnosis, we offer the subconscious that adult logic, that updated logic. We say to the subconscious, by the way, grannies can live anywhere. This is your grannies live by the sea. And if it's healthy for the subconscious, or if the subconscious believes it to be healthy, it accepts that selective thinking. The subconscious is very healthy. If you offer it McDonald's or a salad, it will choose the salad. But if it only has McDonald's available, it will eat McDonald's rather than die. So it will always make those healthy choices. But once those beliefs are set, they're set. And at times of, between the ages of five and nine, and at times of trauma, we don't have access to adult logic. Because when we're five and nine, we don't have a developed frontal lobe. And when times of trauma, we are in our subcortex. We are not in our cortex. We're not in our thinking brain. And so the subconscious can contain some logical fallacies. Like, for example, my, my um, um, riding instructor when I was growing up was an identical twin. And very identical. I mean, in their 80s, you couldn't tell them apart if you didn't know them very well. And um, when they were about six or seven, somebody said to them, 
in front of them, um, Bill and Arthur are almost identical, but Arthur is the good-looking one. And Bill, his whole life, believed that he was unattractive, even though he was a very attractive man. And so he compensated for that by being very charming and being very interpersonally effective. And so it stuck with him for his entire life, even though it was not logical and was something one person said at one time, but it was at that particular age when the subconscious was so open to programming. So now coming back to your question, Oliver, this is a very contentious issue in um, hypnosis. And it's not the hypnosis that is in this case dangerous. It is the relationship between the therapist and the client. And we know that the relationship between a therapist and client carries a lot of power and is open to mistakes, is open to um, uh, harm, and is open to abuse. And that's why we've got CPDs that we have to do to make sure that we're working effectively. <clears throat> that's why we've got the ethical code, is to protect our clients from our power in this particular relationship. Now, if you use that relationship for your own gain, I do know somebody that was um, uh, sexually assaulted by a doctor, not a psychologist, but by a doctor and under hypnosis, but it wasn't the hypnosis that it was, it was the power in the relationship, where the doctor used the power in their relationship to take advantage of this person. Okay, so that is not the hypnosis, it's the relationship. Now, in this particular kind of helping relationship, there can be also a mistake that the therapist makes, thinking they're doing something in the client's best interest. Now, let's go to finding memories, repressed memories of childhood trauma or repressed memories of difficult things. Now, you as a therapist think you are helping the client by finding these memories. Now, the client is believing that the best way or the only way that they are going to heal is by remembering this particular thing. Now, one of two things can happen. Um, one of three things can happen. Now, they can remember it and there can be some healing because the therapist creates a new um, a new experience around it using the hypnosis and um, they do some work in the regression that creates some kind of healing if it was a repressed memory there can be some kind of healing um, it can be that the person remembers something that actually happened that then re-traumatizes them but because they believed that remembering it would be helpful that they remembered it but it actually traumatized them now remember i said the subconscious won't do anything that it doesn't believe is in its best interest but it does have faulty logic sometimes. And that is where hypnosis comes in to update that logic. Or the third thing that can happen is the person can have false memories. Because they've believed that remembering something, this trauma, is the only way that they're going to heal. And there's been an emphasis on it in the therapy that remembering is important for healing, which we know from brain-based therapies that it's not true, that we can have, um, we can have healing without remembering the content. Um, but now this person believes that. So their subconscious gives them a memory, a confabulates a memory that is going to be the key to their healing. And that's where we see false memories. So I think that there are a lot of people that are doing valuable work with regression analysis. And like I said, instead of using regression analysis, I use BWRT. If I want to work on a particular memory, then I would rather use BWRT. Um, I don't go looking for repressed memories because I believe, and I have had the experience before, that when there is safety in the therapeutic relationship, anything that ought to be remembered will be spontaneously remembered, and then we can deal with it when it's safe enough to do so. Um, and that you can create false memories, because, or you can re-traumatize the person by forcing um, the memory to be remembered because the subconscious believes it's in its best interest. And in that way, obviously, hypnosis can create some harm, but it's more the therapy that creates harm than hypnosis itself. Mm. 
Thank you. I mean, that was amazing. And I, and I think that, that's why I'm always a bit wary. You know, when people always say, you know, confided in a friend or something, and, you know, they want to remember all of these things. But then, you know, the term, uh, you know, my wife used to use it. She doesn't use it too much anymore, but it's uncontained. You know, it's like, you yes. know, if, if you don't speak to someone like yourself, you know, that can actually manage that space and manage that person, you know, you're going to have this, you know, these people, you know, the, the person jumping off the rails and stuff like that. So, that's why I just want to, you know, break that down and ask, you know, like, how does it work? Because I know there's certain memories or certain things that kind of come up and you're probably not ready for that. And I think that's that term, you know, uncontained probably. Where, um, yes, and there's, so just no way to, there's no way to reality validate it. I'll share with my, from my experience now, you know, um, when I first trained in hypnosis many, many years ago, and then I later did Warwick's training, um, I was doing a lot of self-hypnosis on YouTube and there's some very good self-hypnosis um, recordings but I did a past life one um, and I don't recommend doing a past life one by yourself because I was actually so traumatized by what my subconscious showed me in this past life now whether it's true that it was a past life or not or something I saw on tv or a bad dream that I had or just something lurking in my subconscious it was so upsetting and I had nobody to debrief it with and had to wait until my next therapy session to be able to talk about what had happened and had I had somebody there with me at the time to make sense of it and to process it and to contain it with me, it might have been a much more valuable experience. Mm, thanks for sharing that. That's actually amazing. It makes me think of like horror movies. I refuse to watch horror movies. Like, like you know, you're always like training yourself how to become fearful. But, uh, you know, you keep on looking for these signs then. Uh, so I haven't watched one for years. Um, I did want to ask again, going back to the subconscious. So, you know, like there's a whole, I don't know if it's a movement, but there's definitely a lot more focus on gut, you know, like, uh, uh, how healthy is your gut as an example. And there's ways that I've heard recently where you can test for that with the subconscious, you mentioned, you know, healthy, but is there a gauge of how healthy your subconscious is? I'd say the gauge of how healthy your subconscious is, is about how effectively you are running your relationships. So. In our interactional frame, we say that our whole world is made up of our relationships. And when things go well in our relationships, things go well with us. When things go well with us, things also go well with our relationships. So when I have healthy schemas, when I have healthy programming about how to effectively navigate the relational frame, obviously then things will go well with my relationships. So I'd say a good way of seeing a healthy subconscious is a person who's having effectively and optimally run relationships, who is in optimal engagement with their environment. You know, that, that, that's actually quite a scary thought then. Um, you know, if, we, if we're going to say that the subconscious is healthy based on our relationships and how optimally we're surviving in those relationships, one has to then consider the fact that Charles Manson had a very healthy subconscious and so did Ted Bundy so <laughs> that means well, that their decisions were conscious decisions not subconscious decisions well um the subconscious in its mechanisms are healthy but remember in its logic can sometimes be distorted so its underlying mechanisms and its objective is always very healthy but and it also you know sociopaths and every single sociopath I've ever worked with has got severe childhood trauma and so the subconscious detaches from a relationship because it believes through that faulty logic that we should have um, no attachments in relationships because attachments is the root of suffering. And so people become objects to me rather than actual people. And that's what happens. 
And if we say, but they, they weren't effective in their relationships because they went to jail. Going to jail is the ultimate sign that you've done something ineffective. So eventually they got caught and eventually they went to jail. And the thing that I've also realized by working with, with sociopaths, and I, I know it's going to sound strange, but I've actually got quite a soft spot for, for sociopaths, is that they have no joy in their lives. They have stimulation and they have excitement, but they have no meaning and they have no joy. And that's why they, and not all sociopaths are violent. We know that only the psychopaths are the sociopaths are violent, but they don't. Attachment is the root of all suffering, but it's also the root of all joy. And they're not optimally engaged with their environment because they're doing something that is completely socially inappropriate and they also don't have any joy. So I hope we, we've clarified that they not necessarily have healthy subconsciouses. The mechanism, the actual beast, I used to think of the subconscious like a warthog. If you look at the id, <clears throat> I used to think of the subconscious like a warthog, like the sweaty, a little bit gross, like bull in a china shop kind of beast. And working with the subconscious and being trained in hypnosis and seeing the infinite healing potential of this creature, I realize it's actually more like a unicorn. But sometimes it is fed something unhealthy and becomes sick. And that thing that is fed that is unhealthy happens at times of trauma and between the ages of five and nine in the relational frame. Yeah. Sorry, Shaz, you were saying? I actually love that you clarified it like that, Jeannie, is that, you know, the subconscious itself is probably fairly healthy, but has been fed something in those specific instances, early development, childhood, or a case of trauma that has kind of warped it a little bit. So although on the outside, they might appear to be, there's some sort of detachment that shows that this person isn't actually functioning functioning 100% optimally. Exactly. So it's quite interesting that you put it that way. And more importantly, that you clarified that not all sociopaths are dangerous. It's more the psychopaths. Yes, exactly. All psychopaths are sociopaths, but not all sociopaths are psychopaths. Mm. And Wait, not, not, physically, not physically dangerous, but dangerous. They can be dangerous emotionally as well. Uh, okay. Um, so it's amazing how fast the time has gone by. So we're going to close up quite soon. But um, I, we, I, I did have two more questions. But, uh, you know, the one is, you know, what we had on the agenda, which is what are the risks of doing hypnotherapy? I think, you know, if we can just spell that out. But you mentioned something earlier, and I can't leave it until we just close off that one as well. We spoke about the affirmations, and you said there were certain conditions that have to be in place, you know, for affirmations to be successful. I think that will be amazing just to hear it. Maybe it's not off on topic, but I would love to hear what those conditions are, uh, because I think that would just close up that thought pattern that you mentioned earlier. Absolutely. So the risks of hypnosis would be that it doesn't work and you waste your time and your money. Um, and can also, that I think is the only real risk. And then also, you know, doing something like self-hypnosis by yourself, if it's uncontained, or going to a hypnotherapist that doesn't um, understand about um, the oversaturation of the central nervous system. And in trying to put a person into hypnosis, they can have an ab reaction. Now, I usually only see this in other kinds of brain-based therapy. I've never had this in hypnosis. Um, I like to think of hypnosis as like the, the hand beater that beats the cream by hand, and it never overbeats it. Whereas sometimes the brain-based therapies or neurofeedback, the brain-based therapies are like the electric beater, and the neurofeedback is like the cement mixer. Um, those, you actually have to first make sure that there's enough space. If you think about, you know, beating something with the electric beater, you have to make sure there's enough space so it doesn't spill over. Um, but those would be the only real risks of hypnosis, that you waste your time and your money. And then obviously, like we said, with false memories, 
Um, so to go to somebody that knows what they're doing in terms of their post-hypnotic suggestions or working with regression analysis. Um, and also if you've got a very, very, very um, over-stimulated or over-saturated um, central nervous system, um, that the therapist knows first how to ground and contain the central nervous system before trying to do any work with it. But I think that would go for any kind of brain-based therapy, which hypnosis is a kind of brain-based therapy. Um, and then to answer your question about um, the um, post-hypnotic suggestions, so the first one is that it has to be um, as if it is happening now. So um, I eat less, I exercise more, I lose weight easily. Okay, you can hear which is my favorite one to do when the Christmas pants are feeling a little bit tight. <laughs> I eat less, I exercise more, I lose weight easily. Okay, so it has to be realistic. Not I wake up in the morning 10 kilograms lighter. Okay, so it has to be realistic. It has to be something that your subconscious will buy. Okay, not I don't want to smoke anymore. It can be I am confident and um, I'm confident in social settings and enjoy um, engaging with people. Okay, smoking is something that helps you with social anxiety. So it'd be something like that. Um, it has to be said at least 15 times. It has to be at certain times, like when you are running on the treadmill, not when you're running on the road so much where you're paying attention to other things, but running on the treadmill just before you go to sleep at night. Um, or when you are listening to bilateral music or when you've done a self-hypnosis trance um, at times like that. Um, and there also has to be some kind, this is not necessarily one of the technical criteria, the technical criteria is that it has to be happening now. It has to be something that is going to happen, that is um, uh, positive, so happening rather than not happening. So not I stop feeling self-conscious in public, more I feel confident and relaxed when I'm with people. Um, and it has to be um, plausible for the subconscious. Okay, The subconscious is not, not stupid. It has to be plausible. Um, and then on the other, not so much a technical aspect, but it also has to be a little bit rhythmic. There has to be a little bit of rhythm to it. I eat less, I exercise more, I lose weight easily. I create healing within myself. In every day, in every way, I am better and better. Now, if we look at that in every day, in every way, I am better and better. What was that guy's name, Emil Koo, who said that? Every day, in every way, he said, I am getting better and better. But we understand in hypnosis, you have to say, in every day, in every way, I am better and better. I create safety within myself. I love and accept myself. So there's a little bit of a rhythm to it, and then it actually helps your subconscious get into that pattern of brainwaves as you are giving that suggestion. Because the suggestion creates bypass of the critical faculty as much as the critical faculty creates opportunity for selective thinking. And so having a little bit of a rhythm to it um, actually helps it go in deeper and even quicker. Okay, great. I'm, I'm glad I asked that because I think that closed it up nicely. I think uh, those are really, I mean, you know, what we want to get with the show is as well is something actionable, um, I think, which is really cool. So I'm glad you mentioned that and also closed off that. Shares on your side, any closing thoughts for Jeannie? This, this was amazing, by the way. I mean, I love the topic. And, uh, you know, it always surprises me, you know, when you think about it at the beginning of the show, you always think, uh, or the episode, you always think, you know, like, you know, do we have that much to talk about, you know, in hypnotherapy for an hour? And then, you know, an hour goes by and it's like, wow, you know, I think we can still go, you know, a bit more. But um, we do want to close it up. Um, Shares, anything on your side that we should have asked Jeannie uh, that we didn't? Um, no, I think we covered hypnotherapy quite nicely. We went down one or two rabbit holes, but I think we definitely covered the topic in quite a nice circular fashion and more importantly, got some really insightful 
tips that people can actually use themselves to help improve their lives. So thank you very much, Jeannie. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for opening up this topic. Like I said to you, it's very dear to my heart. I would love more people to be able to benefit from hypnotherapy. Um, and understanding about hypnosis is obviously incredibly important for that. So thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yes, I could probably talk for another two hours about mm -hmm. hypnosis. And there's mm -hmm. a lot more about the history that I could probably tell you. Boy, you all to tears. But mm -hmm. thank you. It was really lovely to, to be with you both and having this very rich discussion with you guys. Sure. No, the, the pleasure was all ours. And I mean, we think we learned a lot. And, you know, what we also want to get with this is not just the actionable part, but uh, it's it's building a, a, a you know, repertoire with someone that like yourself, so, you know, so we'll include all of you know, you know, the show notes, your, your details in the show notes. Um, I love how you put ideas across, you know, like the, the use of like metaphors and analogies and stories. Uh, I mean, I think everyone can relate to that. So I think that's something that your clients or prospective clients, obviously, you know, uh, I'm sure are thrilled to work with you around. And I think for anyone listening to it as well, you know, about, about this topic and then, you know, like hearing you speak, you know, if they can resonate with that, I'm sure, you know, they'll contact you. But thanks for doing Thank this. You. Thank you so much, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode. <music>